Hello, it is 9 a.m. in New York, 4 p.m. in Johannesburg, and 9 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to In Transit with Sunday Bean. I'm an intercultural strategist, transformation facilitator, and solution-oriented coach. And I am on a mission to help you adapt and succeed through any life transition. This week's episode, we're going to talk about global transitions. And I have a hunch this is not going to be a stretch for you, thinking all of the global transitions we've been feeling over the last two years. The pandemic, the resulting travel restrictions, health risks, and more have profoundly impacted all of us. Even this week that I'm recording, we're seeing another ripple across the world with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. What we don't think about is the subtler things that impact us, the things that emerge with seeming neutrality that suddenly have a profound grip on our lives. And today we're going to talk about one of them. AI or artificial intelligence is, to be very honest, something I push to sci-fi movies. Maybe I've seen a family film like WALL-E and thought about that adorable robot. But when we really think about artificial intelligence and how it's taking over so much of what we're doing, we see how it comes quite close to our lives. When you think about the AI that is built into the palm of your hand, think about the ways in which you rely on it as you just use your cell phone. Stephen Hawking says, AI is likely to be either the best or worst thing to happen to humanity, right? Right now, I need some hope. (laughs) So I am hoping it is the best thing that's going to happen to humanity. But what I know after this interview that you'll hear today, it's not going to happen on its own. What we're learning about AI is that its scope and power is far reaching. In an article from VentureBeat, they say, the far-reaching scope and power of machine learning, ML, and artificial intelligence, AI, means that gender and racial bias at the source is multiplied to the nth power in businesses and out in the world. Right? I mean, we were busy enough with human bias, and now we're going to have to worry about bias programmed into our technology? The answer is absolutely a yes. This is serious. It is so serious because the scope, as you've seen, is magnified and we can't directly see it, right? So in this episode, we're going to look at the intersections between AI and DEI. And to have me do that, we're going to invite Michael Grunewald. Michael specializes in data science and artificial intelligence. He performs technical implementations and also has a particular focus on trust and ethics as it relates to the technology. In terms of his background, he studied business mathematics and informatics in Amsterdam, nowadays known as business analytics. And he began his career at a policy research institute we worked for over 10 years. He's been working with Ernst & Young Netherlands since 2016 as a manager within the consulting practice where he leads the data science and AI capability. 
On a personal note, he was born and raised in Amsterdam. Michael is of Afro-Surinamese descent. Suriname is a country in South America, a former colony of the Netherlands. And Michael certainly also has a lot to tell about that history and how it relates to the present. He has what is called a pan-African mindset and is very much here to aid in the healing of the souls of black folk, he says. Today's episode, you'll also hear how his work has a power to also not only help in healing, but prevent harm. He says, my background as a researcher always comes in handy. I'm critical and analytical, but I also have an eye for the human side. That's exactly what caught my attention about his work. He combines his interests and know-how in history, lived experience, and professional background to make a difference for all of us in this all-important global transition. Stick around to the end because this is our very first interview since I unveiled ATT, Ambitious Transformation Transition, and Michael is the first to answer a set of questions I have about it. This will show you exactly why I believe in this approach so much. I'll let Michael help you understand AI more. We know what the definition is, but what's behind it. But before we dive in, I want to just briefly make sure we're on the same page about DEI. Now, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is something that we've been talking a lot about. I want us to have the shared context. So according to Seth Bowden from harvardbusiness.org, diversity refers to anything that sets one individual apart from another, including the full spectrum of human demographic differences, as well as different ideas, backgrounds, and opinions people bring. All right. So when we say that, that's what we're looking at. E in DIE stands for equity, fair treatment for all while striving to identify and eliminate inequities and barriers. And inclusion implies a cultural and environmental feeling of belonging and a sense of uniqueness. It represents to the extent to which employees feel valued, respected, encouraged to fully participate and able to be their authentic selves. So wanted to make sure we're on the same page with that. Thanks to Seth Bowden from Harvard business work. In this interview, we also talk about white supremacy. And if you are from my generation, when I hear white supremacy, I automatically think of the KKK and white hoods. But if you've been following the discussion around racism, equity and inclusion, and diversity, we know the term has been changing over the years. And now, according to Nobel Peace Prize nominee Barbara Smith, she talks about it on how we use it in the context now. In her piece from the Boston Globe, she talks about systemic racism and how it clearly conveys the pervasiveness of racial oppression, but goes on to say that white supremacy goes further by indicating that there's a rigid nexus of power that protects it and reinforces it. So we want to make sure that when we hear the conversation, it's talking about something more subtle, something more common even, and maybe not intentional or even obvious, right? So I want to make sure we are on the same page with that as well. All right, let's get started and hear from Michael. All right, Michael, I am so excited to welcome you to In Transit. Thank you for being here. Yes, thank you, uh, Sunday, and uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Looking forward to chatting with you. So, uh, so am I. It's been a long time coming. You and I were talking before we hit record that we've known each other over LinkedIn for at least two years. Yeah, um, so it's exciting to um, be able to connect in this way, and I'm so lucky to have been able to follow your work because it's really truly opened my eyes to the connection of my work and 
data collection, AI in the world. So I'm excited to share this with um, our listeners today and do so, as I was saying to you before, kind of with, oh, how should I say it? There's so much responsibility in getting this topic out because it has such a profound impact on all of our lives. And that's not something I really realized. So before we begin, can you please help (laughs) those of us who are not in AI understand just generally what that really is and where we come in contact with it in our everyday lives. Yeah, of course. AI, was it short for artificial intelligence? And uh, yeah, that term, it kind of suggests real intelligence. But what I often tell people is that these systems aren't actually intelligent. So what they do is they they might look at data that has been collected and they might be able to like detect certain patterns in there. And based on those patterns, for instance, from historical data, uh, the system might be able to like predict what might, might come ahead or it might try to like, based on the data, try to determine like, okay, how does the world work? Uh, and based on that, try to determine like, what would be the best decision to make, what might be the best recommendation to provide. But it isn't so that the systems actually really understand what's going on. So yeah, how does it manifest? So like, for instance, when you think about speech recognition systems, uh, that you maybe can talk to, to your computer or to another device, but also like image recognition, those are like examples where you see that AI is manifested. You know, it, but it also manifests in a lot of different things, like also like the our mobile phones, like all the stuff that we have on there. So in many ways, in many different areas, do you see AI? You can say that these systems, they make life easier in a way, you could say, because they allow us to do certain things maybe more efficiently or maybe allow us to like tailor services specifically to the person based on maybe your, your preferences, your previous history or other characteristics you have or maybe characteristics of people have that have a similar profile as you. Uh, and then based on all that data, the system then can determine like, okay, what likely will be like the best fit for you when it comes to services or products or other things you might be interested in. So those are like, yeah, just as a quick introduction, some of the ways that you see this technology manifesting. And it's quite broad because you see it in many different areas and uh, also many areas that you don't, yeah, maybe necessarily don't think about, but uh, also like even like the, the, the software that you have on our computers, all the word processing, also the, the yeah, the, the, the systems that we use to create uh, presentations, etc. Also, in all that software, there are also like it's also AI incorporated to make yeah, stuff more, like, yeah, work more smoothly for us. So yeah, you see it in many different areas. Mm. And so for me, you know, as I've done a little look into it, I realized it goes way beyond what I had in mind. Kind of those future sci-fi movies, <laughs> but real practical, right? Real practical things in everyday life. Um, you said that it's the intention is to make our lives easier. But what I've learned, you know, looking at it, my, again, this naive view of, hey, this is fantastic. We have data-driven ways to do new things because it feels like it actually puts in some neutrality to our human experiences. But what I've learned from you is actually it's the opposite, that whatever bias that we have as individuals gets programmed into the data and then it it's manifests to scale. So can you say a little bit more about the intersection between AI, right? Artificial intelligence and DEI, this, this awareness that more people are having that we need to build in processes of diversity, equity, inclusion in all of our, our things. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, because that's very true that it's uh, yeah, the, the idea might be that, okay, these systems can uh, 
make matters or the assessments that we make more objective. But the reality is that specifically when it's about um, people, when the systems are trained on data that comes from people or is about people, uh, what you then see is that these systems basically just reflect what is in the data and the data is a reflection of society, of human nature. So for instance, if people have certain biases, that's also reflected in the data. Uh, and that's then also where the system can learn from, from the data. Uh, but also, for instance, another way it can show up is that um, the systems are only yeah, basically as smart or can only learn from the data that is presented to them. So for instance, if only uh, one group of people is used to train a system, uh, then it also means that basically the system only learns, uh, gets an understanding of that group of people. And that can then mean that maybe if you apply to other people, that it doesn't work that well. So for instance, mm -hmm. if you only make a system based on, on men, um, then it could be that the system doesn't work that well for, for women. Or if you only use train a system based on, on, on white people, uh, only on white men, it also means that it might only work for, for that group. Um, so those right. is also something to think about. And this is then just one side of it. That's the, like the input data side. Um, but even regardless of what data you put into it, uh, also as humans that are developing or monitoring the systems, um, yeah, also, yeah, at that point, as humans, you need to be able to like supervise the data and say like, okay, um, I know the society that we live in, I know the biases that exist there. Um, so based on that, then I also need to make sure that I check the systems and also check like whether I've, what I've built actually works for different groups. And that is something that you can also, um, yeah, that you also need to do yourself as a human. So regardless of what data you put into it, uh, you need to check for it. And then also you need to check at the end, like, okay, does it work for different groups? Um, and then also helps, like you asked about the intersection of AI and DEI. Uh, you see it in many different ways. Another way is that you look at like the people that are developing it. Uh, do they have like a diverse background? Um, and also truly a diverse way of thinking um, so that you can really also incorporate the different perspectives uh, not just theoretically, but also like really incorporate people from those different groups. So it's like if you make a system for all people, then it cannot be that only men are the ones developing it. Then you, yeah, you also need to include women. But also if you make right. a system for everyone, you cannot just only have like one demographic in there or only one ethnicity. You also need to make sure that you incorporate the other ethnicities in there. Uh, just also to increase the likelihood that you will yeah, get truly a broad perspective in there. Um, but let's hold I mean, up for a second. Th this yeah. is more than just a broad perspective and something functioning. This actually has implications that are life or death. Truly, yeah. 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 So one example, indeed, that I also often talk about, that's uh, uh, so-called oxygen meters or oximeters. Um, and the thing there is that they basically are like little devices that are used to, they're clipped on the fingers of people and they used to like estimate the, the, the blood levels in the oxygen of people. Uh, but the only problem is that they don't work that well necessarily for people with darker skin. Um, so what they basically do is they overestimate the, the, the level of uh, oxygen in the blood. And as a result, based on that overestimation, those people then only later get the help that they need. So only later they might get extra oxygen or get put on a ventilator. Um, and that's, of course, extra critical right now because we've been living in a pandemic for all these few, uh, like the last few years. Uh, and of course, like oxygen levels are very important there because like one of the things that you saw when people get in the hospital that they need extra oxygen or get put in the ventilator. But if then the oxygen meters, the oximeters, then overestimate your, your blood oxygen levels, then you have a big problem. Um, 
And the thing is also with that is that it's already bad enough that it's like that, but the research saying that has actually already been available for quite a long time. So the research was already done like 30 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, you know, a little over 30 years ago. Um, and that already said like, okay, these, these uh, devices don't work to help people with darker skin. And the recommendation was then also given by the researchers that the manufacturers would incorporate more data uh, from black people or from other people with darker skin to make sure that you would then be able to like recalibrate the algorithms so that you would also get proper readings for them. Um, but the thing is right now that during the pandemic, it was established that they, yeah, it seemed that it still don't work that well, these devices. So the UK is doing a review together with the US counterparts. And also the original researchers who first published an article in 1990, at the beginning of this year, they published a new article. And in it, they also said that they have, I see no evidence that the manufacturers in all those years have actually implemented the recommendation that they gave to also uh, like get data from people with darker skin so that you can recalibrate those algorithms. So yes, like you said, life and death, it's definitely a case of life and death in this case. And um, But yeah, it's also important for me that you know here is that because like people talk a lot about the technology and also, of course, because I work in the technology field, I get asked uh, first and foremost about the technology. But what I also tell people is that, yeah, it, this is not really a technology issue. It's really about people because, like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just like ethical AI. Okay. It really requires ethical humans. And in this case, also, like, like if you've known for 30 years, then that, that's not a technology problem. That's like a human decision problem that they, yeah, they know about it and they make the conscious decision to say, like, okay, for me, it's not that important enough to make that change. Um, so you just leave the technology as is with all the dire consequences for other people. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like what 30 years go by and yeah. nothing has, has happened. And I was listening to an interview that you did and there was a caller that came on and it broke my heart. She's like, what do I tell doctors, when I go in and they take my oxygen and I'm having an asthmatic attack, my son is having an asthmatic attack and they say my oxygen is fine. So she's not only experiencing, uh, I wouldn't even call it a microaggression here <laughs> of, you know, with a human, um, because they're not believing her case, but they're, you're, you're also getting it built into the technology, right? It, and it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, that's massive. There's, I just want to do a shout out to Carolyn uh, Criado Perez. She has a book called Invisible Women, where she talks about exposing the data bias in a world designed for men, um, how that also has health implications um, for women who are, let's say, in a car crash because the seatbelts were designed for men and, and not for women. So it's huge. So what do we, I mean, how doesn't this all start with who is getting trained at the university level for being in the data industry or it must, it's much bigger than that. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's certainly a part of it. So for instance, like um, if people were only trained, for instance, like if you only look at the technical aspect, you might say like, okay, uh, I've made a system and it has a very high accuracy in total. So you will think maybe, okay, I'm good. I'm fine. Everything works properly. Um, but then you also need to be aware of the fact that you need to also look at the different subgroups to determine, like, okay, does it also work well for all the different groups in there? And if that's not the case, then you might need to say, like, okay, I need to maybe arrive at the new or different AI system, or that you maybe say that I only use it for specific groups, for which I know that it works well, and for other groups, I might need to do something else. 
Um, and also, like, if you would use this to, for instance, diagnose people when it comes to healthcare, for instance, is also a healthcare example, you can also say, like, okay, um, it has only been tested on, for instance, mostly on white people. Then you can say, like, okay, I know that it works for white people, I can use it there. But in other cases, based on research, um, it might be better to use another device or uh, another way to, to determine, for instance, like what, what, yeah, whatever it is that you want to diagnose. Um, because I think it's also important to say, like, okay, it, it's not necessarily so that you always need to use the technology. It's more like, okay, it is a tool that you can use, but if there is a certain imbalance in there, they can also make an alternative decision. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, your people, the problem that I also have with like, okay, um, with, the te- with this whole technology discussion is that it, yeah, it's it's a lot of deflection to the technology. It's a lot of pointing to the technology as if mm-hmm. that is the, the big issue. But right. yeah, all the things that we talk about have, are really, have really to do with human nature. Like it reflects human nature, but that's only like w- one of the issues because you can say like the data that is, yeah, whatever the data is. But as humans, you can also then make the decision like, Am I going to check for it? Am I going to leave it in place or not? Am I going to make like different decisions with it, or, or am I just okay with whatever that's that's in there? Um, and that's just really has to do with, with yeah the ethical behavior that needs to come from humans. And I think that's the the big thing that we need to solve because yeah ethics in AI like like I said the the, the terms yeah artificial intelligence it's kind of suggests real intelligence, but the systems aren't really intelligent. So the real intelligence and the real ethical and moral behavior really needs to come from humans. Um, and yeah, they need to step up there, but uh, yeah, I think we, we can say that like, when we just look at the whole world around us, everything that goes on, it's, yeah, it's very clear. It's very obvious time and time again, that yeah, humans and ethics, that's not a a problem that we've really solved yet. So, uh, but that's where we really need to need to start if we want to solve the problem of ethics and AI. Absolutely. Michael, I don't really hear a lot of hope in your voice. Tell me where I'm wrong. (laughs) Well, it's like, uh, I'm just realistic, and it's also because, like, uh, yeah, my personal background also, and also, like, even though I work in technology, like, I I love history more. And when I just look at history, like, all the stuff that you see repeating all the time and also how people simply refuse to really acknowledge history. So, for instance, like, mm-hmm. I know that you're in South Africa, and uh, um, I know that South Africa also has a brutal history. Um, but mm-hmm. one thing that I really do appreciate of that country is like they had truth and reconciliation and mm-hmm. you can say whatever you want about that process, but that does provide you at least a way forward, a way to at least try to heal and come together. Uh, but when I look at yeah, European countries, when I look at America also, I don't see truth and reconciliation. I also don't see any reparations because that's also <laughs> an important discussion, mm-hmm. but like if mm-hmm. no reparations, no truth, no reconciliations, then how can you really move forward in any yeah, constructive manner? I think we can definitely make progress, but there needs to be a willingness. And that willingness is something that has, yeah, that has very much been lacking. Because again, like I said, South Africa, truth and reconciliation, I think that's a good model, but I have not seen it in Europe and I have not seen it in America. And uh, I think that's something that, uh, yeah, really, really needs to happen. There needs to be, if you really want to move forward and really need to heal, then we, we need to be able to like have truth and really acknowledge that. And if not, then uh, we'll keep having the same issues over and over again. That's, Yep. What I do think. Yeah, we've seen that for 450 years uh, in the U.S., for sure. And that's you said truth, right? And you said at the same time you talked about acknowledging it, like acknowledging the truth. We can hide it under 
the covers and not, we won't work on it if we don't acknowledge it. Um, and you and I have had private conversations about how in Europe often there is a denial of the level of racism that goes on and you only see it. It's, if it's not in public conversation, you only see it when you're in private conversation with people who are directly impacted. Right. Exactly. Uh, it's, exactly. It's so much more subtle, right? It's so much more subtle and implicit and that's almost scary because then you can't see it. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I can give an example, for instance, uh, because of course, you know, you know, I work at a big corporate. Um, but one thing that I experienced a few years ago that was very interesting, uh, because my family is from uh, Suriname, uh, Suriname, you say it in English, a mm-hmm. uh, country in South yeah. America, but it used to be a former colony of the Netherlands. And uh, it was uh, because the Netherlands were very active when it came, uh, came to slavery. So that that's where they enslaved Africans in Suriname. That's what was one of the colonies. But the interesting thing that they had, then I was sitting in uh, the cafeteria, just chatting with some colleagues, and we were just uh, joking around, uh, not serious, we're just talking about like all the different ways that people can speak uh, a language. Um, but we were just joking around, not disrespecting anyone. Uh, but then someone came in, uh, a senior manager actually, and she clearly misread the room, because what she said is that, in an irritating, uh, irritated voice, she said that... Uh, all Sudanese people do not speak Dutch in a proper way. Mm. That was what she said. Mm. And I looked at her and, it's, and I corrected her on the spot. I said, like, okay, uh, it's not correct what she, said, what she said, but also that there are different forms of Dutch. So you have, like, mm. the Dutch that we speak here in the Netherlands, but also, like, we have Flemish Dutch that is speak in Belgium, mm-hmm. and also the Dutch that is speak in Suriname. Um, mm-hmm. But that they are different forms does not mean that the one is better or worse than the other. Um, mm-hmm. But the interesting thing there was that, of course, she was wrong with what she said, but also, like, she had clearly gotten so comfortable with me that she had forgotten who she was sitting next to, that I was actually one of the people that she just disrespected because she disrespected Sudanese people as a whole. Um, right. So that's how it then gets out. So that's, uh, and actually I, I, those moments are not pleasant, but at the same time, they really show me a person because she was so comfortable that she showed her real side. And I was like, okay, now I know who I'm dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. And this is one example but with the same person, I'll set another example again with language. It was then uh, a South African person there. And of course, in South Africa, you have the, the uh, Afrikaans. And that language mm-hmm. basically derives from Dutch. Um, but her comment about Afrikaans was that that is a very cute language. And she talked mm-hmm. about it with affection. And I, then I was like, okay, interesting. So the Surinamese mm-hmm. that the black people speak, the Surinamese Dutch that the black people speak in Suriname, that you criticize. But the Afrikaans, uh, that is spoken there by the, the so-called settlers who actually introduced apartheid there, a brutal apartheid regime. You talk fondly about that. So those kinds of things, and this this is done an example, and the thing is that also, if you said like how subtle it is, this is also a person that presents herself as very uh, pro- progressive, uh, but this is then the things that she has, that she says. So yeah, this is one example, but that's one example that really, uh, yeah, I clearly remember because it really, it really showed me. Uh, right. Something, yeah. But then you never know when you're in a safe space with people because you can't know where they're really at. And I mean, I can speak as a white woman. It's like white supremacy and all of those contexts that you're raised in. It's pervasive and you discover it as you wake up to it more and more ways every day, right? Like it's even if you know (laughs) 
a lot yeah. doesn't mean that there aren't things lurking inside, right? It's an ongoing lifelong process of deconstructing that in ourselves, right? It's, it's incredible. And this is why I think I was, I felt so much respect for this topic because, you know, in, in my work also with my background in intercultural communication, it's around seeing similarities and differences in people breaking down prejudices and stereotypes. And that's with the human side. And I would never think about getting involved in a project that had anything to do with technology because that's not my area, right? It's not my concern. But when I when I learned more about AI, I thought how important it is to have multidisciplinary, diverse teams in corporate, in, in education, because it has such pervasive human impacts. Definitely. And I think like... Uh, mm-hmm. Like this is one of the things that I do uh, within my work uh, because I work at UI. Like, and one of the things that we do is like we we look at okay, how can you uh, arrive at what we call trusted AI, and we look at different factors. So we say like, okay, the technical reliability is one part of it, but actually, when it comes to the whole trust equation, like whether people will trust the technology, it has to do with factors that are more related to like the ethics, uh, such as fairness and bias, uh, values, morals, uh, but also like the social impact. For instance, like, okay, how will the technology maybe change the way that people do work? Will they need to do different work? Will the jobs disappear? All those kinds of questions. Um, and also like accountability and explainability are very important because like no matter like what the system decides, um, there also needs to be like a system behind that that's accountable or person or organization behind that. Uh, and you also need to be able to like explain decisions, especially when it's crucial because like, uh, like, at the beginning, we talked about, okay, how, how does AI manifest? Now, things like if a system recommend, uh, recommends a certain movie to you and it isn't a movie that you really like or it recommends a song to you that you, and yeah, when you hear it, you're like, no, 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 that's not really a song that I like. Then, okay, the consequences are not that uh, big, the negative consequences. But for instance, like if you use AI to determine whether someone will get a loan or whether someone will get uh, benefits because they have d- disabilities or they are unemployed for whatever other reason. Um, and if there's then a bias in there, uh, then of course the consequences are way bigger. So you need to be even more mindful there. So like, like also where you assess like, okay, how can you use the technology responsibly? I think the the, the, the negative impact that will have on people, that's also something that you really need to consider. Um, because yeah, it's, uh, it's very quick. It's very easy to arrive at the decision through such a system. Um, mm-hmm. But the consequences can be huge, and then also repairing those consequences for people can also yeah, take quite some time. So uh, it's very important to be yeah, quite mindful of those things. And but it really has to do like whether you care enough about people, also to yeah mm-hmm. really consider those things, and also to just invest in trying to make sure that it actually does work well for all people. Because yeah, if if you're more like okay, it works fine in ninety five percent of the cases, no, then I'm cool. Uh, but those, those, that little 5%, that's still important, right. especially when it's about people and especially when it can really hurt people. It's, it's immense. It's immense. How do you keep motivated to do what you do, Michael? I, I, I just always need to keep going. I'm like, okay, um, regardless of like uh, the outcomes that you will see or the results of the work that you will see, it's like, okay, putting the work in the process, try to at least keep pushing forward to... Uh, like yeah move society forward in a better manner and and again like i said regardless of the outcomes also just giving the signal that yeah i mm. uh, i don't accept the nonsense so it's like mm. even in the corporate world when i encounter certain stuff it's like okay 
I'm just going to give you the signal that, no, it's not okay. And I'm not going to be the one to play with. I don't accept those things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that will change uh, the whole world or the whole corporate world that we live in. But I'm just going to keep giving that signal because that's, I think, one also an important element. Because like I said, like, my family is originally from Suriname. But before that, we were, of course, originally from Africa, but we were enslaved there. But a key element of the whole enslavement is not just breaking you physically, but also mentally. So for mm-hmm. us today to uh, just also still give the signal that, okay, no matter what the nonsense is that you try to put on us, like you don't have me mentally, I'm still resisting mm-hmm. and I'm still putting you in your mm-hmm. place. And I think that that's that, that aspect alone is for me also very important because that, yeah, in that sense, you can say like, okay, uh, no matter where you are, um, that internal you or that internal self, uh, you still have, yeah power there and still have the, the, the resistance there. You, so I'm not going to let uh, someone else basically try to define me uh, because even though that, that's kind of like what we're faced with, that yeah, the world around us tries, tries to define us, but I'm like, no, I'm going to resist that. I know where I came from. And that's something that basically also can keep me grounded, kind of like an anchor. And mm-hmm. based on that, um, yeah, then I can still find all the strength to just keep going on and also just connecting with different people because like, uh, I can also give a shout out to you because actually I've also mentioned you to also like a lot of other people that I'm connected to. Um, there is a clear difference I see in the interaction, for instance, that I have with you and that I also have friends with a lot of other people, a lot of other white people that I've also encountered in the Netherlands, for instance. And there you see like how racism manifests in many different ways because you see like, okay, how, how you treat another human being. Um, and then, when they look at how some people treat me, I see that there is a difference in how they treat white people and how they didn't treat me. Um, mm. Not based on any actions that I have done or that the other person have done, but you see like there's a, a lack of respect or lack of grace or people just stare mm. at you as if you're some strange creature, like they stare at your hair or they want to comment about your hair. Um, those kinds of things. Like with another human being that you actually see as a human being, you would not do that. So, for instance, I never would have the, the urge to say, like, okay, I want to comment about a person's skin color or hair mm-hmm. texture or whatever. But still, I encounter a lot of people that, that think that is a fun or okay thing to do. And then I'm like, okay, you really don't look at us really as human beings. You look at us more as some kind of anomaly or something strange. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that when you didn't see, like, when I interact with you and with other people, you see, like, that nonsense that is not there. And that's Mm -hmm. then also how you see like, okay, there's so many layers to this whole racism and how that is then internalized for people and how it can manifest. And Mm -hmm. this this is also one of the most subtle ways that it manifests, but it's so blatantly obvious that you don't treat other people, you don't treat like people from your your own group like that. But then when you see people that look like me, you all of a sudden believe that it's okay. And I'm like, yeah, it's not okay. And also they are always, for me, it's important to just give that signal that now I'm definitely not going to take that, but it's... uh, yeah, it's it's very telling that it's like that, and that really shows like how much of it is internalized. And I'm like, it, of course it is internalized because it's like the same way that there's like a theory about post-traumatic slave disorder, of basically what you get like as a result of being enslaved, like that also really traumatized people, and that's something that it can also be passed on from generation to generation. That's what's so daunting about it. Like when I'm I'm thinking about Resba Menachem's book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, uh, where he talks about there's 14, I think it's 14 generations of racialized trauma that stays in your body. And so it's not just about reading a book on, <laughs> on anti-racism. It's not, it's like a physical practice, like meditation yeah. 
or yoga and no one is exempt from it. Right. Unless it's the people who have been um, oppressed and done the work probably to work out the oppressor, right? That colonization of the mind. It's, it's so pervasive. And when I think about the connection to AI, there's nothing more important than doing the work, right? Because it has literally an impact on billions of people instantaneously. Yeah, exactly. And also what you have with AI is that indeed it has, it can have an impact on so many people. And also like often like the people that develop the technology, um, they won't necessarily like really see the people that are Mm -hmm. impacted. So there's also a big uh, gap there. Like if you directly would see the, like, all the, the bad consequences that your actions might have, yeah. that it might yeah. also deter you. But yeah, now that's not really the case. It's like, okay, everything is happening in some kind of a, a bubble, you could say. And the people that are affected might be like miles away from you, uh, maybe on a different right. continent, so you don't really see it. Um, and I think that's also an issue because like, yeah, to be able to like really empathize, it's also important that you, yeah, that, that, you, that you know actually what is going on uh, and like how mm-hmm. your technology is being used and like, yeah, that you actually also really see what what is then what it might be doing to people, um, and it's true for AI, but it's also true for a lot of other technologies. I think AI is just the latest iteration, but like what you said before, also the book that you're reading, like all those examples, like with, with seat belts, indeed, they that were not tested uh, on women, mostly tested on men, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but also like with medication, often in trials, mm-hmm. also it was mostly men and also the mostly white men that were included there. Um, so as a result, medication might not work that well, for instance, for uh, for women, uh, but also for children, for instance, a lot of medication was never really tested on children. So um, that then also, that you don't necessarily know that well, like how it will then work for them. Um, you might just think like, okay, they're younger, give them a half dose. Uh, but yeah, you don't really know for sure if they were not really incorporated in the development, in the testing. Um, so there are like many different ways, even outside of AI, where you see like that there's bias. Um, and yeah, like we, we, we often say, like, okay, it's really not only about the technology. You really need to get different kinds of mindsets involved because we know society, like if people are honest and really acknowledge what's going on in society, um, then it isn't a surprise that all these biases are here. Because like when you just look at the history, it is racism, it is sexism, it's patriarchy. That is not something that is like a, like a total fantasy or that it's something that people really don't know about like i'm like just open your eyes like you know mm-hmm. you can see but you also need to be willing to acknowledge because i think it's yeah the whole acknowledgement part is really about that people also choose to not acknowledge and choose to look the to the other direction instead of really addressing what's going on but yeah i think like as long as we as society keep looking the other way um then we'll keep finding ourselves back into these difficult situations. So this is, it leads me to one of my last questions on this topic is in light of the fact that like, I don't know, only a handful of um, companies or leaders control our software companies and all of the other technology companies. Um, we can also pr- pretty much guess the demographics of the ones who are holding the power. What can we do as just a regular citizen? Like where is our power? in this? Okay, that's indeed a, a good question indeed. Uh, regular citizens, we have more opportunities to speak out against things, uh, for instance, also by utilizing social media. But at the same time, the reality is when you look at the technology, it's like, it's so pervasive. It's not really that, in a lot of cases, that you really have the option to really opt out of things. But I think one thing that you can do, it's important to don't just assume that because it's technology, that it will be objective. Um, realize that the technology is really a, a reflection 
of the society that we live in, of the, the history of the historical human behavior, of the present time human behavior. Um, and if you keep that in mind, that will also then yeah, make you more critical in realizing that, well, maybe um, I cannot just trust the technology. It isn't just an objective thing. Uh, maybe it does not work that well for me. Uh, and that will maybe also spur you to maybe do your more of your own research also to make sure that you are more informed yourself. So that is yeah, one thing you can do to at least try to empower yourself more. Um, because also, like, like you said, like, okay, uh, since we also connected, like, you also been learning more about AI, and then you also see that uh, it's indeed not just about technology, it's about so many more artifacts. Yeah, totally. I mean, and for me, because I, I hold so many dominant identities, right? I'm white, yeah. I'm straight, I've got passport privilege. Um, for me, what that says is like, keep doing your work Sunday because there's so much to to sort of deconstruct and keep yeah. having those conversations with my boys, keep having those conversations here in community with the listeners. And that's what I know I can do. It also makes me think about like, where can I, how can I send a message? And that's with with the with your money, right? Like who, which organizations you support or speak out against to hold leaders accountable. Yeah. So I, I really want to keep this conversation going also when this podcast goes live, um, when we're sharing it on LinkedIn and other forums to hear from other yeah. people if they have ideas on what we as individuals can do to work toward some of these better, better yeah, outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I think really the speaking out is important. Well, <laughs> it's big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it works. I mean, we've seen it work. We've seen if people apply pressure and that's one of the positive things about social media right now, when that spreads fast and people apply pressure, real change can happen. Um, do you mind, Michael, if we, if we switch um, to a little bit more of an individual focus on you? I, because my whole theme is around ambitious transformation, transition, I'd love to hear a little bit more uh, before we close off. Like, what are some of the transitions that you're feeling right now, whether they're global transitions or personal transitions? Um, yeah. And tell us more about some of the transformations you're feeling. Yeah. Um, well, I think like... Um, yeah, like one of the real transitions I think that I'm feeling is that, uh, um, for instance, like earlier this year, like a family member of mine actually passed away. I think that's uh, those kinds of transitions. They are mm -hmm. like, of course, they're part of life, but those are like, uh, yeah, they, they do show you a bit like, okay, uh, how things can suddenly end also unexpectedly. I think that's uh, still a transition that... Uh, I find like difficult to really like process because that reality that it's mm -hmm. uh, yeah it can, it can just just end and that really also changes like uh, yeah how we move forward because uh, you might have the idea that you can like okay uh, you might have plans for for the years ahead the stuff that you're gonna do but that really also shows us that uh, it's important to really also uh, yeah spend the time together with, with family um, because it it can just be over like that so I think that's uh, that yeah, that kind of transition has been on my mind because it also it's still quite recently, um, and uh, like other transitions, I think like the whole yeah the whole way the, the working world is uh, at least our working world is uh, changing um, because of course during the pandemic we have been work, all working from home and how that will go moving forward. I think that's a transition that I'm also in to see like okay what is something that would work for me, um, but at the same time I also realize that it's it's quite a, a luxury that I'm in because. Uh, I was able to work from home and uh, it worked fine, no problem. But other people, mm -hmm. like, their work just stopped. 
Um, mm. So that's like, uh, yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's also they also they actually see in Act Three again because it's like uh, mm-hmm. the work that I can do. That's that's fine. You can just do work from home. But other people they they really struggled also through the pandemic work wise. Um, right. So how that will yeah bounce back? How that will transition? I think that's something that has been on my mind. Um, but for me personally, it's just like yeah, I think. Uh, I'm just trying to find a balance in there. I think for me, the working home has been rather pleasant. Also, has to do with the fact that uh, with the microaggressions and all that kind of thing that you talk about, uh, not being confronted in that environment all week, all day. Mm-hmm. That is also something that, that something that I have in mind. So, uh, transition-wise, it's basically for me like uh, I'm going to definitely uh, yeah maintain a part of what I've now been able to build up during this pandemic because uh, yeah it has been, a, in a certain way, definitely a more healthy environment for me. Um, right. So, yeah, that's uh, some of the transitions that uh, have been on my right. mind. Thank you for saying that, because that's one of the reasons why that's so important to me to make transparent, because yeah. someone that might be working with you has no idea that you're in a process of grief, might not... Yeah have an identity where they even think about the microaggressions that others have to have when they're just on the tram, right? Those things, I think I'm committed to bring this idea of, I talk about straight talk and being a full human. This is part of you being a full human, right? Not just, you know, an employee at a big fancy company. And when we start to see each other's humanity that way, I think that helps us connect in in new ways, right? So thanks for for sharing that. You're welcome. what do you have going on right now that you would consider uh, ambitious? And remember, ambitious is defined by you and has no influence on an yeah. external scope or scale. So it could be just like clean laundry. <laughs> What's yeah. ambitious for you right now? Uh, well, ambitious is just uh, basically just living my life authentically, just being me. Because you hear a lot about, okay, uh, showing up authentically. Well, the reality is that... Uh, that is not necessarily appreciated, but I'm like, okay, uh, I'm just, I'm just Michael in whatever space. So, uh, you know, me from LinkedIn, but the way that I show up, that's the way that I present always. Um, so the way I speak out, mm-hmm. that is just me consistently in all areas. So, uh, that's like my ambition to like maintain that consistency and just, uh, yeah, keep it real all the time. And, uh, so, and I think it's important because I think that's again, like also just like, like a like giving the signal to the outside world. It's just like, okay, uh, with me, you don't have to question where I stand. I make it very clear. So you don't have to guess, you know, like how I view things. And uh, you might not like it, but that's for you to deal with because I'm not responsible for your emotional reaction to that. But uh, I'm just going to keep it real. And uh, that's my ambition to just keep it real and just keep going the way that I've been going and uh, just yeah, speak my mind about the, the things that really matter. Because uh, for me, it's like uh, I have my day job, I do my work, but ultimately, like, that's for me not the most important things. Like when you talk about human rights issues, that is way more important. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend like, okay, uh, I'm just doing my money. Everything's going fine. But in other parts of the world, I see that people are being killed or being brutalized or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's It would be very hypocritical of me to not care about that or not speak about that also. Because uh, yeah, people, I've been approaching people to say, like, okay, aren't you concerned that people might not uh, say something about the things that you say here? And I'm like... Well, I don't lie. I just also just, just uh, tell the truth, just uh, facts, nothing more than that. Uh, and I also know, like, okay, whether I'm on the right side or not, because, like, a lot of these issues, like, it's not even very difficult when it comes to racism or police brutality, 
uh, when it comes to sexism, uh, misogyny, it's not like it's very difficult to decide like, okay, what is right or wrong there. So when I speak out, like I'm not really concerned because like I know <laughs> which side is right, right or wrong. There. It's not very difficult. It's like also with like with the Me Too discussion, I remember that people were saying like, so men like, okay, um, we cannot say anything right now. And when I'm like, no, you never could say those things. It's like, it, it's not really very difficult things. Like we're talking about certain extreme behaviors that were never okay. They might've been tolerated, but even in the period that they were tolerated, you already knew that it was not okay. Um, that's also true for, for slavery and racism. Also 200 years ago, they knew that it was not okay, but they twisted everything that they could to make it seem. So they, they used the law, like the Dutch law that said that we were not humans. Um, right. They used the religion also to try to justify it. And the fact that they spent so much energy in justifying or now is in America with the CRT and try to erase the, the history, that already shows you that they actually know that, well, what we did is very bad. So bad that we really need to twist everything as much as we can to make it right. go away because we know how bad it actually really is. Right. Exactly. Thank you for being part of this, this conversation. Um, it has meant so much to me and you've represented this topic with such clarity and uh, integrity. I just want to say thank you for being here. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I uh, also really appreciate our connection. I think uh, we are able to fight clearly on the same frequency on many things. So, uh, it uh, has been wonderful actually connecting with you. So I also appreciate uh, you giving me this opportunity to uh, yeah, spend some time with you on your podcast. Michael gave us so much to think about. I'm so grateful for the time he shared with us. And it left me with a lot of clarity on things that were before quite fuzzy, but a lot of new questions as well. I'm grateful that this is a conversation that we can have together. So if you're listening to this um, and see this on social media, chime in with your questions um, or insight, because this is an important conversation for us to be having. You've been listening to In Transit with Sunday Bean, steady advice in an unsteady world. Thank you for listening. Michael's inspired me and has left me with some hope because he is so committed to making change. And that is why I chose to leave you with the words of this poet, Veronica Tugaleva. By serving humanity, I automatically serve myself. 